If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. I want to read the text we used for Sunday school this morning, and then we'll pray and begin our worship of the Lord. Psalm chapter 3. It's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Will you pray with me? Father, what a great and glorious reminder this psalm gives us this morning. God, here's David fleeing for his life as his son tries to overthrow his kingdom and his son seeks his life. Lord, there's so much at stake here, so much bitter, painful, painful experience that he's having, God, and and. and we can't imagine the stress that was on him at this point in time. God, the temptations to sin in his emotions, to sin in his actions, to sin in his thoughts, to sin with his speech. And yet when we read this psalm, we don't, we don't see those things. What we see is a mature faith. And so God, we one, just recognize that David speaks in ways that we often don't when we're faced with trials and tribulations. And so, God, we want to be like David. We want to ultimately be like Christ because here's David who suffers well, but yet one from his family comes later, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered most excellently. He did not revile or uh, curse those who spit on him and beat him and, and ridiculed him. He was like a lamb led to slaughter who opened not his mouth. He did not sin in his speech, Lord, or in his uh, communication with those who hated him. He entrusted his soul to you, and we see David doing that here. And God, again, we just come back and recognize that that is not a natural response to the, the circumstances that David was in. It's not a natural response that we find welling up in our own hearts, but God, it is the, the redeemed response. It is the, the saved response. It is the, the Christian response. And so, God, we ask for the Spirit of God to so indwell us as your people that, that as we find ourselves as Christians being marginalized in our own culture, as we find ourselves at odds with family members or co-workers or, or uh, people on Facebook or, or out there in, in the workplace, God, that we, would be, uh, that we would not be overwhelmed with fear, that we would not be overwhelmed with anger, that we would not be overwhelmed with emotions, God, that, that though the bottom falls out on life and we find ourselves in, in the most dire and distressing situations, God, though, though things painfully are stripped from our lives or though people seek to and accuse us with, without uh, grounds for accusation, though we lose jobs, God, though uh, we find ourselves in bitter uh, conflict, help us to be like David models in this psalm, God, and entrust ourselves to you. And God, one of the things that we saw and talked about in Sunday school is that David made you his trust, not a, a, an outcome. He didn't, he didn't trust in, in 
well, I just know that one day God will write all this and put me back on the throne and, and, and put down this rebellion and everything will be right. He didn't put his hope in an outcome. He put his hope in you. You were his trust. You were his shield. You were his boast. And I, there's almost an echo of Paul that whether he lives, uh, to live is, is for God and to die is gain. And God, that's the kind of mature Christian attitude that we need this morning. And so, God, we pray again, just asking that you would help us to take such refuge in you. Refuge, God, that gives you glory. Refuge that is not fretful or fearful or anxious, Lord, but refuge that, that, that recognizes your power and your strength. And so, God, I'm reminded of, of John Piper and the way that he, he says, you know, don't waste your life. And he talks about not wasting our cancer, not wasting our, our diseases, Lord, our Parkinson's or our diabetes or other things that, that afflict us, God. There is, there is a boast that we can have. We, we see that as a weakness, but what we ought to do in those situations and with the scenarios that we're in is flee to God who is our refuge and boast in the sustaining power of our God the satisfying power that though these things have been taken from us, though life is upset, though things are, are in chaos around us, I can lay down and sleep and get back up because God sustains me. And so God, let us be mature in our faith and let us take such a boast, such a, a, a hope-filled attitude, God, into the trials of life that we face. And God, let us be encouraged this morning as we uh, arise to sing your praises that we would remember that there's no trial that we're facing, no situation so dire that we can't identify with David and that we can't experience the help that he received from your hand. God, you are ready uh, to give that help to us this morning. And so we pray that, that anyone here this morning that is suffering, God, anyone in the darkness of despair, anyone whose life feels like it's falling apart, God, anyone enthralled in bitterness or anxiety or fear or sin, God, that you would rescue, that you would strike those enemies on the cheek, that you would shatter the teeth of those things, God, that come against your people, and that you would rescue and save your children from the mouth of the lion and the bear, and that you would give uh, opportunity, Lord, for your people to praise and glory in your rescue. Lord, you are a God of justice, and we plead and pray for justice in this world, that you would make uh, what is right to be trusted in again. Lord, that you would put down the rebellion of the nations who are seeking to overthrow your rule and your reign and cast off your restraints. God, we pray for this nation. We pray that you would guide the, the leaders and the lawmakers of our country, that you, they would continue to provide religious freedom, that they would continue to provide, God, the, the freedoms of our, the liberties of our constitution, and that we would have the right to, to, to gather to worship you freely, even though society is arrayed against your church and against your rules. God, help us in the midst of those kinds of things to take refuge in you, and we do, God. Though weak and imperfect, we do take refuge in you, and we thank you for the grace that you've given us to stand in the might that you've given, God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray and ask you that you would grant to us that the words that we have just sung would be the true condition and the, the true cry of our heart, Lord, that we indeed will go with you wherever you lead us. God, I just recognize that often in my life and I think in, in the lives of others, we see you calling, we hear you calling in your word to us, uh, to obedience, and, and yet we resist that. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us to repent of that, that we would surrender our lives over to you, 
whatever it is you're calling us to do, whatever area of obedience we are holding back and being reserved in, I pray that you would uh, lead us to surrender that. Give us the grace that we need to do that. Lord, we pray as we give today for your blessing uh, on this offering. God, we think of uh, the missionaries that, that we support and we ask for your help uh, to, to be with them, Lord, many of them in, in much more difficult and challenging circumstances than we are in. Uh, and yet they're there because they have heeded that call to go with you wherever you lead them. And so I pray that you would bless them in their obedience, bless their families. God, give them uh, give them fruit, Lord, for the labor, Lord, that they're doing, that they would see people come to faith, that they would see churches planted, uh, and that their work would not be in vain. Uh, Lord, bless us, help us to be generous givers so that we can support these and, and perhaps others. And uh, we just ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to really focus in on verses 12 and 13, even primarily verse 12. Um, but I just want to read again uh, chapter 4 for us. And uh, I don't know if you're like me. I feel like I'm like Charles Stanley or something. I don't know if I'm getting old or just the, the time change, but I feel like I need a, a table and chair up here today. Uh, so we'll, we'll ask the Lord for his help and for his grace, and hopefully if, if you all are uh, engaged, the Lord will use this time together. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were, they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, <clears throat> they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long after, in words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Why 
don't we read the Bible? We're going to be focusing on verses 12 and 13 uh, that speak about the Word of God and some of the attributes of the Word of God. But one of the things that I recognize often in my interaction with other believers uh, is that I typically get a rather tepid, res- tepid response uh, when we talk about reading the Bible. Uh, talk about the, the spiritual discipline of, of Bible reading and, and people start to get a little squeamish. There's, uh, there's, it's clear that, that many professing Christians find it a great struggle to be in the Word of God regularly. This is borne out by research time and again. Uh, just recently, I think it was last year, Lifeway did a study that examined different things about you know, sort of just Bible knowledge that most Christians have or how often Christians are reading the Bible. Uh, and, and the evidence came back that it's just like there, there are not many who just are consistently every day in the Word of God with regularity. And, and even uh, as bad as the numbers are, you know they're probably worse because most people lie about surveys like that. Like how often do you read the Bible? And, and we say like, what we, what we think we ought to be doing. You know, we, we always try to make it sound a little bit better. Uh, and, and so you wonder, why is it? Why is it that we don't read the Bible? And I think some of it has to do with the fact that there are many people who are false professors. There are many people who claim to be Christians, but there's no real inner Christian life. There, there's the Spirit of God does not reside in them. And so they have no hunger for the Word of God. Like, you've got to be truly born again in order to desire and a hunger for the Word of God. But I think for other people, uh, some have not been discipled. They just simply don't understand the Bible in general. They don't, they don't know and understand and how, how to interpret it and, and its meaning. And they also don't understand the important place that it has in the life of the believer. As part of that kind of su- a subset of that group, I think many people tend to see the Bible as so old and hard to understand that it really holds little relevance for them today, for their life today. To them, the Bible is dead. It is, for all intents and purposes, a relic of a bygone era. Maybe it is, they they think, maybe a, a record of what God did or said a long time ago, but it has little practical effect on my every everyday life. Sure, there's a lot of information. That's maybe the way some Christians view it. Like there, there's a lot of information in there, and like good, really intelligent, mature, growing Christians, they're gonna learn all that information, right? So that they they could really do good on, on Jeopardy when they have the Bible category in Jeopardy. And and that's the way that we think about it. It's kind of like a store a storehouse of facts. Well, when we think of it that way, a lot of people are like, well, I'm just okay with being a C student, right? Uh, maybe I don't need to have all that information. I, I, I don't need to know all of those things. For many people, the stories of, of, ancient, of an ancient group of people, like we're dealing with here, marching around in the desert, seem so foreign and uninteresting that it's hard to imagine what they could possibly have to do with present day life. I'm in my Bible reading right now, reading through the Old Testament, and I'm in the law. And, and no doubt, and I've talked to other people who are in the same place, and there, are, there is a particular challenge to reading through all of these details. Like, do I really need to know how many cubits this was? 
And, and I don't even know what a cubit is. I don't know if you know what a cubit is. Maybe you're smarter than I am. Uh, but I don't even know what a cubit is. And it's this many cubits by this many cubits. And, and, and then reading about all of these sacrifices. And, and there's all these little variations. Or reading about the, the construction of the tabernacle. Or you know, some of the most challenging is the geneal- genealogies, right? These long list of names. And you're thinking like, I don't even know how to pronounce these, let alone I, I don't really understand what's, what's going on here, what the point is. No doubt there are some, some challenges uh, to understanding and applying the word of God. But what I want us to see this morning is that these verses, our text this morning, particularly verse 12, would have us, uh, I think, have a different view of the Bible than merely the the idea that it is a storehouse of facts, that it is a record, just a a historical record of what God has done and said, but that it has little impact for us today. Uh, The word of God, according to verse 12 in, in our text this morning, the word of God is vital for the Christian life. Not because it's the record of what God once said, but because it is what he is saying now to us. Our text would have us understand that the word of God does indeed hold a place of relevance, not merely as a storehouse of information that intelligent Christians should know, but as a soul-searching, sin-exposing, conviction-bringing, faith-creating, living message from God. The, The big idea of this verse And of this passage is that the word of God is vital for the Christian life because it continues to speak to us today, exposing our sin and unbelief and calling us to faith. So let's jump into this verse. Let's read verse 12 again. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here, there there are a couple of words that are used to describe the Bible, to describe the word of God. And the first one is that it is living. This is the word, this is the average, everyday, ordinary word that means to be alive or, or to live. So it's the word that is Translated in one place when it talks about God, the living God. Or when Jesus resurrects from the tomb, from the, from the grave, uh, he says, go your way. Uh, or rather, rather, when he heals uh, the, the man's daughter, he says, or the son. Well, I'm really messing that one, that one up. Go your way, your son will live. And when Jesus resurrects from the grave, the disciples heard that he was alive. This is the word that just means to be alive to be living. And so to say the word of God is living, we we need to understand sometimes people talk about, you know, like the Constitution is a living document. And by that, they mean that it kind of changes over time. And so what it meant when the founders wrote it uh, is not what it means today. And and I want to be careful when I say that the Bible is the living word of God uh, and that it continues to speak to us. I, I don't mean that what it said then, it no longer means uh, it means something different now. That's, that's not what it means. To say that it is the living word of God means that it is alive and that it continues to speak. Its message, which is the same, it's an unchanging message, but its message continues to be empowered today. 
So one person said this, the Bible is not merely an occasional book with isolated and specific messages for isolated and specific people. Because of its divine authorship, it spans time and space and occasion to reach down to all of us who read it. We must not downplay the occasional nature of its writing nor its human authorship, but we must let those things must not let those things bar us from seeing the Bible as a book of relevance and authority for us today. The Bible is a living book. When, when you read the Bible, God continues to speak. He's speaking to you. This isn't just what he said to some people long ago. This is what he is saying to you now. The Bible is living. Well, in order to understand kind of why, why is he bringing this up now? I, I want to remind us of, of the context. Jared did a good job of preaching through these verses, but I just want to take a minute to, to help us tie in. Why, why is it right in the middle of this, talking about perseverance, why does he go on to talk about the, the word of God? Is the writer of Hebrews just thinking here, hey, this would be a good place to insert a, a theological point about the word of God. What I want us to see is that it's actually tied to the way that he is using scripture himself to speak to, to us and to the original audience. You remember that the, the book of Hebrews is all about perseverance. He's writing to believers who are struggling. They're, they're being persecuted. There are challenges to their faith. And so they're beginning to drift away from the Lord. And he's writing to them to encourage them, don't abandon your faith in Jesus Christ. Continue to press forward. Continue to believe. And so he points them to the Old Testament example of the children of Israel who did not persevere in faith, that God delivered them from Egypt, but they did not believe, they did not trust God. Instead, they persistently uh, disbelieved God, and as a result, God's judgment came upon them. They were not allowed to enter into the rest of the promised land that God had promised to them. So look at verse 3 and verse uh, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. He's pointing back to this generation. He's saying, Look at them. They serve as, as an example. They always go astray in their heart. As a result of them continuing to not believe God and not trust in the Lord, God brought judgment on them. So verse 11 says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the judgment was that they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. As a result, they all died in the wilderness. And that's verses 16 through 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom were they, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Now what he does at this point is he highlights this example uh, of this promised rest that God gave to them and the fact that their unbelief kept them from entering into that promise. And, and he takes that message, he takes that basic storyline, and he says, this applies to you. You're in the same situation. This, this all transpired thousands of years ago. 
but, but it applies to you to today. You need to take this same situation. You need to take what God spoke to them and the events of their lives, and you need to apply them to your own situation. So the promise of rest, this promise of salvation, is, is now open to you. He uses this example and, and applies it to the people of, of his own day. The promised land serves as a picture of rest or salvation. And so he picks up and, and quotes from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is kind of the connecting link between the original when the children of Israel rebelled and the present day context. And so he uses Psalm 95 to pick up on that. And so we have Psalm 95 quoted here in, in verse number uh, seven and eight, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, he's referencing Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Psalm 95 said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, which makes this, to the writer of Hebrews, sort of an ever-present invitation. They heard the message of salvation. They heard this promise of entering into the promised land, of entering into this restful place, and, and yet they never entered into it. And now the psalmist is saying, look, if you hear the promise of God today, you don't harden your heart as they harden their heart. Even though this was so long ago, the invitation and the warning still stands because God said today. It's kind of an ever, ever present invitation then, today. When is today? It's today. What about tomorrow? Well, if, if we're here tomorrow and we're reading this, then it's today. We have, this, we have this present time of opportunity to, to repent and to believe, to trust into Christ, trust in Christ and enter uh, this promise. Since the Exodus generation, the point he's making is that since the Exodus generation never entered God's rest, then the promise still stands. So look at verse, verse 6 of chapter 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long after, in wor the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you hear that? You see that in verse number six? Since therefore it remains for some to enter. In other words, God said, here's this promise. Here's this promised land. Here's this salvation. Here's this redemption. You are invited to come into it. And they never took advantage of the promise. They did not enter into the promised land. They never received the, that blessing of redemption and salvation. And so he's saying, since it was promised and they didn't take advantage of the promise, it's still open. So you have the opportunity now to enter into this rest. That's what he's saying there. Since therefore it remains for some to, someone to enter. In other words, someone's got to take advantage of this. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. So now the opportunity is for anyone who hears this message today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today you have the opportunity to enter into God's rest. Today you have the opportunity to receive this blessing through faith. The promise still stands. That's what it says in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. When does it stand? Well, it stood 2,000 years ago when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, this letter. 
and it still stands today. As long as the word of God is here, it still stands. The promise of salvation, the promise of redemption is still open to any who will believe. It's still available. In verse number seven, he says this is today, or verse number two, rather, uh, we, we see that good news has come to us just as it has to them. But with this promise of salvation still being open, also the word of judgment, the word of caution is still, uh, still relevant to us today. So chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, you should have a bit of trepidation. You should have a little bit of concern, recognizing that God held out this promise and they failed to enter it because of unbelief. Now the promise is still open for you to, to enter in through faith to God's promises and the same thing can happen to you. So you need to exercise some caution, right? If we're, if we're up on the roof and I see somebody take a step and slip and fall off, I, I'm going to be careful. I, I'm going to have a little bit of fear and trepidation not to go and make the same move. Right? And that's what he's saying here. Look, they didn't enter the rest. The promise was given to them. The offer was extended to them. Now it's been extended to you. They didn't enter. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to fall by the same sort of disobedience later on, he, he says? Or are you, going to be, are, are you going to believe? So we ought to have fear. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, like the evil, unbelieving heart that they had, leading you to fall away from the living God. And again, chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Uh, there, there's, there's a diligence to, to believing and persevering. So why, after all of this, does he launch into this discussion about the word of God? I've, I've read this before, and, and I, I've got to be honest with you, until studying it this week, I've, I've always had a, a, just like a difficulty understanding what is the context here. Why is he talking about all of a sudden the word of God is living and active and sharper? I, did, did he just cut and paste? Like, I've got this really good idea. It doesn't really fit anywhere else, so I'm just going to put that right here because I want them to know it, but it doesn't really fit with anything else. No, no. The idea is this. There is a connection, and this is the connection. The, the, the connection is this. His use of the scripture, this Old Testament story, and Psalm 95, which, which was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the, before the people who received this letter in Hebrews. His use of these old texts to call them in their present day and to call you and me in our present day to, to repentance and to faith in Christ. His use of the text in that way is undergirding by, by a concept or by a view of scripture that views it as living and active. In other words, what he's wanting us to see is, hey, hey, look at these examples. Don't just read, don't just read the story of the Exodus generation as if you need to know that so you could be good on Jeopardy and, and answer questions. You need to see, uh, when, when you read those stories, you need to put yourself in those places. You need to see that these things apply to you. Uh, you need to see that there is a, a connection to your present day 
life, that God is indeed speaking to you. His use of ancient scripture to call present-day believers to repentance and perseverance is undergirded by a view of the Bible that is still alive and still speaking today. These words from the distant past are not merely artifacts, a record of what God said to people thousands of years ago, but they are alive. God is speaking to you today. In other words, what we need to understand is we we don't need to read the Bible in a way that historically insulates us from its meaning, right? We need to read the Bible in, in a way that takes it and immediately applies it to ourselves, We want to be careful, yes, to understand the context and not distort the meaning, not rip it out of context. Yes, that is true. Yet I am convinced that we must see these stories. We must hear these words as having an immediate impact upon us. This is precisely what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, look at the Exodus generation. That applies to you. Don't make their mistake. Listen to this invitation today. originally received the letter to the Hebrews. And if the Lord tarries in another 100 or 500 years, that invitation will be for those people as well. It's a living and active word. It's alive today. It applies to you today. And we need to read the Bible in that way. That's what the writer of Hebrews is is doing. See yourself in the same danger of judgment that God poured out on the Exodus generation. When you read that story, recognize, I could do the same thing. I could come into under, God, under God's judgment, or I could take advantage and enter into God's promises through faith. When you read Psalm 95, recognize that God is calling you to believe today. The word of God is alive. This is the way that the Apostle Paul understood the Bible also. So you could look at it, it should be on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 10 This is one of my favorite passages. I I think it's so helpful in understanding understanding how to read the Old Testament, how to read the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers who were all under the cloud, again, Paul in in this text is also referring to the Old Testament people, uh, the wilderness generation. He says, And they all passed through the sea. They went through the Red Sea when the Lord parted the waters. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So so he's just recounting there the history of of the Exodus. And they, they crossed through the Red Sea, they ate the manna, they ate the quail, they drank the water that miraculously came out of the out of the rock. They they did all of those things, and yet It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Do you see how Paul is reading the Bible? When Paul reads his Old Testament, he's saying, that's for you. Recognize it. See their unbelief. See the mistake that they they made. See how they rebelled against God. See how they did not have faith. That is an example for you that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people 
uh, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then again, he just says, this is what I'm doing. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. They instruct us. Our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. So, so you see, this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's doing the same thing as the writer of, of Hebrews. And, and that's really how we ought to read our Bibles. When we're reading these accounts, we ought to be applying them to ourselves. We're not just collecting data. We're, we're not just trying to get, get smarter or get more information or, or be you know, a, a little bit better than, than other people and how much we know of the word of God. No, what we ought to be doing is looking at these things as examples for ourselves. This means we should not read the Bible as merely a history book that explains what God did long ago, but as a divine message which presently speaks into our life. So when Satan tempts Eve to doubt God's word, you need to read that and, and see to it that he doesn't do the same to you. When God speaks to Cain and warns him that sin is crouching at his door, wanting to rule over him, you, you need to read that as a warning to yourself. When God blesses the faith of Abraham, you should recognize that, yes, I need to follow that example. I, too, should trust God. When God protects Joseph and turns around all of these circumstances providentially and sovereignly in his life, you should recognize, yes, God will do that in my life. He's working everything out for the good of those who love him. When God is faithful to his promise to redeem his people and bring them out of Egypt, you should recognize, yes, God will be faithful to me as well. When God warns his people to be very precise in, in their worship of him and that the instruments have to be exactly as he's commanded them to be, you need to recognize God wants me to be serious about my worship of him. He wants me to not take it lightly. When God brings judgment and excludes the Exodus generation from entering the promised land because of unbelief, you should see that as a warning for yourself. So these verses, verse 12, really is all about an approach to Scripture which views it as alive for God's people today. The Word of God is living. And listen, we need this. We need that kind of living Word in, in our efforts to persevere. That's what this text is all about. You need to persevere. And if you're going to persevere, you need to be reading the Bible on a regular basis. And you don't need to just be reading it for historical gather, data gathering. You need to be reading it as a living word of God to you today in your current situation. You need to hear the voice of God speaking to you, calling you to repentance, and calling you to obedient faith. We need that in perseverance. Listen, you're not going to be able to persevere in the faith. You're not going to be able to continue following the Lord very easily if you're not hearing his voice speak to you. I'm reminded of what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How, how are we going to be faithful to continue to follow the Lord if we're not hearing his voice? 
The word of God is living, but the word of God is also active. The word of God is active, effectively accomplishing God's work in your life. This is the second word that, that is used here. And, and it's similar, right? It, it's alive. There, there, there's vitality to the word of God. But, but this word takes it a bit further, uh, even than just being alive. It's not only alive, but, but it's also working. The word that is translated here, active, is the word that's related to our word, energy. It has the idea of activity or work, but, but it importantly means work that gets something done. Sometimes if you're like me, you can work, but you don't get anything done. You don't actually get anything accomplished. But this word, when it's used, this idea of active, it's, it's activity, it's work, but it accomplishes the thing that it, it sets out to do. So it's effective work. It's effective work. And we actually see that uh, translated in a couple places. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 16, 7 through 9, uh, Paul uses this, and, and he says, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, talking about ministry. Uh, in other words, he's saying there, there's an opportunity, opportunity for me to do ministry, and, and it's effective ministry. In other words, things are happening. Things are being accomplished. Paul prays in Philemon for their faith to be effective. It's an act of faith, but things are happening. In both cases, it, it isn't merely activity or action or work for its own sake, but it is effective work. So the word of God is not just alive, but it is effectively working in our lives. It is doing God's work within us. This is the other reason we need to be reading the, the word of God. God's word is always effective. You remember back to the, the Old Testament, right? The very beginning of, of the Bible creation. God creates the world, and, and how does he do it? He speaks it into existence. In other words, when God speaks, his words accomplish what he says. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing to think about. God, he can just speak, and whatever his words declare happens. And so it is with the, the word of God. It's a, it's a living book. It's, it continues to speak to us, but, but it also continues to work in our life and to do so effectively. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When Jesus tells the, the paralytic man, rise, take up your bed and walk, he, he gets up and he, and he walks. When Jesus calls to Lazarus and he says, come out of the tomb, Jesus' words had a power to accomplish the thing that he commanded, right? And that that's the way God's word is. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says this, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish all that I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Sometimes the word of God is meant to bring judgment. Sometimes it is meant to be a word of grace, but it always accomplishes God's purpose. 
Well, what, what does God's word accomplish? What kind of work is, is it doing? And, and he describes it here. He says the word of God is living and active. There's that word active. It's, it's working and accomplishing things. And then, then he uses an analogy here. He compares the word of God to, to a sword. And so this is what the word of God does. It's what it is and what it does. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's the first word. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow. And here's the second one, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is the work of God, the, the word, the, the work of the word of God that it does in our life. First of all, it's piercing. It, it exposes our sin. It, it really gets down to the depths of our soul. This, this idea of, or the analogy, the picture or illustration that's used of a, a double-edged sword. A, a double-edged sword was extremely sharp and it had the ability to pierce right through a person, right? And that's what he's saying. That's what the word of God is like. It, it's able to car, cut through all of the exterior, all the show, all the walls that we put up, all the hypocritical uh, facades that we place up. And, and it's able to pierce right through all of that and get down to the depths of our being. It gets down to the soul and the spirit. It, it talks about it dividing between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and discerning between thoughts and intentions. And you could read on and on about all of what that means. And do we have a soul and a spirit or just is, is that one thing? Is there really a difference between joint and marrow and thoughts and intentions? The idea is not for us to try to parse all of that out and come up with scientific uh, 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 definitions of each one of those things and, and discern them out. The idea is just this. The word of God gets down into the depths of your, of your being, down to your soul, to your spirit, the core of who you are, the depths of your being. The word of God has the ability to pierce down into all of that. That's what this is saying. It's alive. It's speaking to you, but it's also powerful. We're pretty good at hiding our inner life sometimes. We can wall off our true feelings and thoughts so that other people can't see them. We can continue to live externally as if we have faith, all the while unbelief is pervasive within our heart. Sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't even know the depths of our own, own being. We don't even know what's, what's going on down there. But, but the word of God has the ability to pierce through all of that and to get down to the depths of our being, to, to expose us, to lay bare our sins, to lay bare our unbelief. It has the ability to bring light to what is dark. It exposes us, but then also it judges us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions. That word discerning is, is just a word for, for judging. It's able to precisely expose what is there, but then also to evaluate it and to pass judgment on what's going on within our, our heart. The sword is... Uh, used as, as a symbol of, of power, the power to judge. We, we see this in the book of Romans uh, where, where it says that the government has given the, been given the power of the sword. 
which means they have the right, the authority to, to make judgments, to make declarations. And so the word of God has the ability to judge our thoughts and our intentions. It, it's able to get down to the depths of our soul and expose it to lay it bare, but then also to bring judgment and discern, to, to expose and, and bring to light what is right and what is wrong. What is sin? What is faith? What is unbelief? The word of God doesn't merely expose our sin and unbelief, but it, it brings it into judgment. It discerns it. It evaluates it. This is the way that God brings conviction of sin to his people. Do you know what conviction is? Conviction of sin. Conviction is that feeling of shame or, or guilt that we have when we, that we experience when we come to understand our guilt before God. Our, our guilt before God is an objective reality. We are guilty before God. Some people feel that guilt. Some people are aware of that guilt. Some people are happy as a lark and they don't, they don't think there's, they're under the judgment of God. But conviction is when the word of God and the spirit of God come into our life and expose our sin and show it to us and bring us to a place of shame and, and, and of repentance because of our sin. The word of God is living and active. And this is one of the things that God's word does. It brings conviction to our sin. We see this all throughout the New Testament. We see it all throughout the Bible, really. The word of God being proclaimed and then people through, through the spirit of God coming to a place of conviction, understanding their own sin. So you remember Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's saying, hey, this one that you all just crucified, he was the Lord of glory. He was the Messiah and you crucified him. And, and when they heard it, it says in Acts 2, 37, when they heard Peter preach the word of God, it says they were cut to the heart. God used that word preached through the apostle Peter to, to bring conviction to their sin. Or you remember the story from, from the Old Testament, right? David, and when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he's going along pretty good. Maybe he had a little thought of guilt here and there. But then the word of God came up, the prophet came, and, and he declared God's message to David. And, and at that moment, when David heard Nathan say, you are the man, he came under conviction. The word of God brought conviction in his life. And he cried out, Lord, have mercy on me. In Psalm 51, he says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. The word of God, you see, it has the ability to bring that conviction. This attribute of the word of God, its ability to convict and, and to bring uh, bring us to a place of conviction for our sins is really why the word is central in the ministry of, of the church. Why is it that we stand week in and week out and preach through, through the Bible? Why do, why do we give so much time to the preaching of, of the word of God? Why is that the central event? It's not because I, I'm anything special or because I even like being in front of people and, and having uh, the, the center of attention on me. The, the reason that we make preaching the center of our worship is because we need to hear this soul-exposing, sin-convicting word of God. We need to invite that into our lives. 
The word of God is, is living and active. It has the power to change life. It has the power to bring conviction of sin. That's why the Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Timothy, when he's speaking to, to Timothy and, and he's telling him, he tells him about the word of God. He says the word of God is, is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. The reason that it's profitable is because it's the living word of God, because it has power. It, it, it's able to accomplish what God sets it out to accomplish. And so when teaching comes or reproof comes or correction or, or instruction, the power of God goes out with that word. This attribute of the word of God is why we also must make the Bible not just a central part of our worship services, but a central part of our lives as well. We need to hear God speaking to us every single day. Christian, listen to me this morning. You need to hear the word of God. You need to hear God speaking to you every single day. It needs to be a central part of your life. That's why he says in chapter 3, verse 7 of the book of Hebrews, Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, listen to God. God is speaking to you today. Why he says in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. How do we fight that unbelief? How, he's saying, watch out, be careful for an evil, unbelieving heart. How do we fight that unbelief within our heart? The way that we fight it is by bringing ourselves day after day into contact with the word of God so that he can expose our sin, so that he can show us our unbelief, so that we can be led to a place of conviction and then repent and turn back to the Lord again and again and again. You don't just do that one time. There's a hardening effect. Sin can enter into the depths of your heart and begin to harden you against the Lord. And you need to hear the word of God every day. Be careful, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that you would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and strive to enter that rest. If we're going to persevere in faith, we must constantly be exposing ourselves, our sinful, unbelieving hearts to the Bible and allowing God's spirit to expose our sin and bring conviction. Let me just encourage you as we close this morning. I began this morning by asking the question, why don't we read the Bible? And I think for many of us, the reason we don't is there are certain challenges to understanding its meaning. But, but listen, you need the word of God. You need this work of God in, in your life. Let me just challenge you to begin reading the word of God. Not just, not just a devotional. Devotionals can be good. Not... not uh, the magazines that we have out there, the magazines can be good, right? All of those things, but, but read the word of God, right? Mature living is not living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Read the word of God every day. Let me just encourage you to put this into practice, to just begin some regular systematic reading of the word of God. And if you're interested in that, you could talk to Jared or talk to me. There, there are other people I know in, in the church who are part of a, a group who are reading consistently. Just ask someone, what are you doing? And get involved in that. You need the word of God 
in your life every day. It's living and active. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we, we thank you that you've spoken to us and you've given us your word. We thank you that it is alive and that it's speaking to us today. Lord, we thank you that it exposes our sin and unbelief. Lord, sometimes our, our sin and unbelief is so deeply rooted within us, uh, we're not even aware of it. And we need you to bring that to light. We need you to expose those things. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us as a group of people to persevere. And, and we pray specifically that you would help us to be faithful to be in your word. Lord, help us to take full advantage of that means of grace that you've given to us. Lord, we, we just confess and we repent today that many of us have Bibles sitting in our home. We have, app, we have apps on our phones. Uh, we have an abundant access to your word. And yet, we, we really rarely actually read it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would change that. We pray that you would begin to build a culture within this church of individuals who are faithful to be in your word every day. As we do that, Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom and understanding in your word and help us to hear you speaking through your word to us today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.